Welcome to the Going to Seed podcast. I'm your host, Shane Simonson, and today we have David Latterwalser from tropical Thailand to talk about his primitive permaculture and his we're going to discuss some plans for possible plant breeding projects under his unusual conditions. So I hope you find this talk really interesting. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Shane. I'm very happy to be here. Very excited to do this. Oh, I'm I'm very excited for the opportunity to reach out to people doing interesting forms of agriculture all over the world. It's a great excuse to get out there and meet people. So do you want to start off by telling me a bit about your background? I can. Usually that's the place where people list their academic achievements. I'm going to do it a little different because I'm not an academic, right? I I grew up in Germany. Sometimes I say I was assigned the nationality German at birth, but I don't identify as a German anymore. <laughs> I've, I, somehow I never really felt home in this country and it was I had a hard time. I was quite alienated in my teenage years and I was never really the the nature guy, no, but I always loved eating fruit. I, ha- I was influenced greatly by my grandparents, who are basically subsistence farmers, who, who bought only, I don't know, coffee and bread and milk their, their entire life, and the rest they had it themselves in their garden. You know, they had bees and a bunch of sheep and just fruit trees everywhere, and so... Some of some of my happiest childhood memories were just being up in the fruit trees and just eating until I'm full, right? And so even though I, I, I wasn't the nature guy, I, I always loved fruit, I always loved climbing, and I, I always felt like a strange connection to plants. Like I was always drawn to do something with plants. Throughout school, we had, you know, those internships, and I did the first internship, I did it in the some kind of tree nursery, which wasn't that good. We, did, we grafted apple trees the entire day and was quite boring. And then the second time we had to do an internship, I was at an organic farm which I really enjoyed for two weeks. And then the last internship I did at the Botanical Garden in Munich, which was mind-blowing. Just the diversity of plants that those guys cultivate and work with and the the people also, the the knowledge that they had, I was so impressed. And so then I finished school and I I was like, all right, so everybody says I got to get into university, so what am I going to study? And I thought about botany and my father, he has a friend who's a botany professor. So I exchanged a few emails and I was like, no, I'm not doing that. It's too boring for me. I have a very low tolerance for just stuff that I'm not interested in. And so then I thought about landscape architecture, but it was the same problem. Like you're not really, you're not really out there doing stuff with your hands. And so in the end, I decided I need more time. So I I worked for a year and some bullshit job saved a little bit of money and then I was like I gotta get out of here this this life is not for me so I bought a one-way ticket to Thailand and I started volunteering on this organic farm in the south which was a very very small farm it was like a half a hectare and they were rewilding an oil palm monoculture which I thought was really interesting because it's a you you start with a really degraded land and then you try to put a food forest there and I stayed there for five years. I ended up staying there for five years because I was, you know, the first few months, I loved it so much. Now there's the weather and the whole, the atmosphere, the climate and all the fruit. And so I I always joked, I said, I cannot go back to Germany afterwards. And so the owner, he asked me, so you, you want to just stay here or no, you can build a little hut in the back and you would just stay here and help me in the garden and with the volunteers. And so I said, yeah, why not? And so I ended up staying. Now, so I... He, the owner moved away at a, at, a, at a certain point and I started renting the place when I met my wife and we ran it together for a year. But then if you, if you do a food forest and you plant trees, then renting land is not the optimum. Like you want to, you want, if you have your own land, you know, all right, nobody's going to sell it or stuff like that. So we, we were like, all right, we got to look for our own piece of land. And so we found it. We, we, a friend of a friend had a nice patch of land and it was double the size of what we had in Kabi. So the land that we live on right now is 3.2 acres, 1.3 hectares. And yeah, ever since we've been living here, I, I, when I was, when I was a, a teenager, I had this thing that I used to say, like I, I said, if I can climb a tree every day and just eat as much fruit as I want every day that I'm, that I'm happy. And I'm quite close to that now. So I did not go to university, but I, I think it I, I think it was the right decision, right? So 
that is about it. That is like where I'm coming from. I'm just this alienated dude from Germany who hated society. Like some people say they get, they get into permaculture because they love nature. Initially, I got into permaculture because I really hated society. <laughs> it was, I was very, very unsatisfied. And I always thought like, there must be something more to life, right? It cannot be that that's it. Like everybody tells you, oh, you're so lucky that you are alive at this point in history in this country, but it didn't feel like it. And so this thing that I did, like when I, when I first moved to this farm in the South, I think I touched an aspect of human nature that you, that is very difficult to find in Europe. Now that you that you really you are in in a direct relationship with your environment you know where your water comes from your food comes from now you are you have all those symbiotic relationships going on with with all of the stuff that feeds you and you know, a bunch of chickens a bunch of ducks and so it was just i th this was what i was missing all along i think that that's so inspirational so tell us more about the space that you're farming now yeah, so we are living on land that originally belonged to the indigenous Chong before it got taken away by the Thai colonizers. The Chong, they were hunter-gatherers in the beginning, and then later they switched to being like swiddening, like shifting cultivators. We live on a, on a mountainside, on a, on a hillside. It's about, our land is 300 meters above sea level, I think, more or less. We are on the northern slope. So our land is not that big, as I just said. So we just have this one single slope and it's the northern slope. So throughout a few months, we have like the sun goes up very, very late behind the hill. So we have this thing that everything in our garden starts fruiting and flowering a little bit later than everywhere else because we have less sun during the season. We live right next to the jungle, basically, to a nature reserve, which borders our land on the southern border and the southeastern border. And on the other side of the valley, there is another huge national park. So the, the place where we live, there's actually quite a lot of forest. There is wild elephants. They come to visit us every now and then, every year or so. Sometimes more than once per year, we have an elephant just walking through our garden. There is there is monkeys, pigtailed macaque, to be more specific. We have hornbills flying overhead, which is really great, like massive birds with a wingspan, and you hear the sound that they're making when they're flying. So it's much more wild than our last project in the south of Thailand. We are it's a dirt road that is leading here, and like in raining season, sometimes the the, the like you have to pass like a little river and it gets flooded. So sometimes we are cut off from the rest of the world. And uh, yeah, raining season here is really intense. We've been talking about it a little bit before we started recording. It's really, really intense. We are in this valley between those two mountain ranges and there is just rain clouds being pushed from the Gulf of Thailand into, the, into our area, 40 kilometers from the, away from the ocean. And we get so much rain in, in August and in September, especially. Like annually, I think it is somewhere in the range of 2,500 millimeters per year right so it's it's always an average number and i'm too lazy to go and check how much rainfall we 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 get right here on our land but it's an average number i think some years it's actually closer to 3000 millimeters it's it's really intense that's getting so up there. yes that is that is kind of the the conditions that we're that we're working with here I guess I got to talk a little bit about the history of our piece of land here because it used to be jungle like five or six decades ago, probably. Mm -hmm. And people at that time, people were able to just clear land if they planted it in a cash crop and then it just became their land. Mm -hmm. And so that was probably, yeah, the worst thing that could happen to this piece of land because they cut the jungle, they burned it, and then they, they tilled the soil to plant rice oh. on a steep... <laughs> mountainside so just as a little explanation the the bottom of our land is it it is steep but not very steep and then when once you get to the middle it's really it's like taking stairs it's mm -hmm. that steep and mm -hmm. so on the very top it like levels off again but you can imagine what happens if you till this kind of land and then you have like this heavy monsoon coming down battering the land in august and september you lose all of the topsoil within a single season mm -hmm. right so ever since the land has just been severely degraded, right? We've, we've never tested the soil, but we just 
grow stuff and we know that when we moved here there were already quite a lot of fruit trees because people half of the land was planted in giant bamboo exclusively like the upper the upper half of the land was only giant bamboo and in the bottom half you had like fruit trees like a mixed orchard but they were just not very productive because they used to like the people who planted them they fertilized heavily of course to make up for the lost soil fertility and then this guy from Switzerland bought the land and he didn't do anything with it for 20 years, which was good, right? Because the land had time to detoxify, but the fruit trees just weren't very productive. Now there were massive fruit trees where he said when he was showing us around the first time, he said, this fruit tree, I never gave any fruit. And this one here as well, I don't know what's happening. And so we have trees, yes, but we are working with really, really, really degraded soil. So things that usually grow like weeds everywhere, like the Lucina and Neem and Moringa, which grow so easily everywhere, the Jamaican cherry, they just, they just don't grow here. We, we just start having like small trees that start producing some fruit. But in the beginning, it was so difficult. Do, yeah. do you, I just I have a theory. So yeah. one of the consequences of adding chemical phosphorus fertilizer to soil is that when it hits the soil, it precipitates trace elements. Yeah. So that uh, would be a possibility if they really heavily fertilized that rice crop and then kept adding yes. it to the to the fruit trees, they might have yes. actually been locking up some limiting trace element. Yes. Uh, and this so is exactly what I suspect as well. Yes. I, I suspect that there is some kind of micronutrient deficiency going on on our land. And as I said, now we, we didn't test the soil and we don't really want to. It's expensive and it's not mm. that easy here in Thailand. And you also, you have to t- sample in a, a lot of different places, mm. not just this one sample. And so we, we try to do it without also because we have this kind of this primitive approach. Uh, where we want to use as little technology as possible. And I mean, you see some of the things you can see it, right? On one side, we have all of those ferns growing and they they indicate that the soil is more acidic. The soil is, I have to say that right quick, the soil is very acidic here. Now, so especially like with reg- regular vegetables, I call them, uh, they are very, very difficult to grow. It's getting easier because we work with the soil a lot. We, we got like oyster shells like from the ocean, uh, and we we crushed them up in a mortar and we added that to the vegetable beds to kind of try to balance the pH a little bit. We even bought some dolomites and rock dust, mm-hmm. but it's it doesn't it doesn't change that much, right? Because you have to add so much of that stuff to yeah. make a difference. And if yeah. you add too much, then it, you know, it becomes like really sticky because the the soil that we have is we're in the tropics. It's red clay, right? Yeah. So it's we lost all of the topsoil 50 years ago. And now we have like a soil. If you look at our soil horizon, it's like maybe 10, 15 centimeters that is brownish. But underneath it is just red clay, not the standard soil in the tropics. Have you tried using the bamboo to produce biochar to that's exactly what we're doing that's Ah. exactly what we're doing we use bamboo all the time so when we moved here we were like all right this is a little bit too much bamboo so we took out half of it so now we we still have plenty of giant bamboo which we use all the time it's such a useful and versatile uh, subject material and so we do like when we have leftover bamboo or when there's just still we have to we have to we have to maintain the bamboo if it gets too crowded the clumps then it's very difficult to harvest bamboo so the dry ones we keep them aside we do the open pit burning method of making charcoal which a lot of people are not going to agree with and be like it's so wasteful but we don't care because we have so much bamboo it grows so fast and it's the easiest and we don't it's, you don't need any expertise for that you just throw yeah. stuff in the hole and burn it and then you cover it with soil and then you yeah. get the charcoal that you get is already really fine. So if you yeah. pound it one time in a mortar, you get this amazing powder. And this is, we've been doing it since year one, because this is one of the main things that we try to increase soil carbon content. We also use this powder in our compost toilet, which is also a huge a huge benefit to the to the soil and that every now and then there is just, we use the, the, the compost from our compost toilet. Apart from that, we did buy cow shit cow manure every now and then it's always if we have money left over then we're like all right let's buy a few bags because now we we do this worm fertilizer thing where we have the vermicompost with the red wrigglers but it's also it's difficult here because it's so humid like we're in the clouds Mm. for many months and so if it doesn't like if it's humid enough then it just doesn't dry and you cannot like sieve out the worms and it, it, it just stays sticky and wet 
for most of the year. And so we can only do that in dry season. So we rely a little bit more on just human manure and basically just yeah, simple, simple composting for, mm. for trying to make up for this loss of micronutrients that, that is somehow present in this land. Just again, while I think of it, does anyone in your area use ice cream bean? The ice cream bean, you mean pakai? Nobody knows this plant in this area. People are quite conservative when it comes to cultivating fruits. If they don't know it, they don't really want to plant it. Maybe mm. not. It's the area where we live. It is mostly durian. Mostly one one cultivar of durian and this one only like people are really totalitarian about their durian plantation we have one single tree pakai the ice cream pot the ice mm. cream bean i don't even remember where we got the seeds from i think a friend just gave us a small tree mm. uh, but it grows quite well we only have this one tree but i'm, I'm surprised it, it does very well in the soil and i i saw that in south america is kind of like a pioneer species so it grows yes once yeah. it starts it really spreads as well and it's uh, it fixes nitrogen so I'm just it, it, waiting for the first fruit to set so that I can plant more of this stuff. I, I would encourage you to check out the Inga Foundation in South America yeah. has developed a way of using the, the trees planted in dense alleys. That okay. shape, they sh It's basically an engineered slash and burn approach to farming in the tropics. So you plant okay. the Ingas as your feedstock for slashing, use the yes. wood for firewood, all of that biomass. Yeah provides nutrients and suppresses the weeds so yeah. it's a, it, it's a it's a renewable form of slash and burn agriculture yeah that doesn't degrade. i would love to plant more yes. yeah so I, 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 I would encourage to, to think about that species as not yeah. just a fruiting species but as a biomass and a fertility species that sounds really interesting. I gotta, I gotta check if I can get my hands on some more seeds or, mm. or young trees because I'm not sure. They they take a few years until they start fruiting, right? I was just like three years, and it's hard, it's quite large already, but no mm. flowers, no fruit so far. Mm. What what we use for biomass or what we what we kind of focus on because it grows very easily and because it now if you think about like just the basic calculation, carbon tons per hectare, mm. it's a kind of acacia, acacia mangium. Uh, yes, yes, yes. I know from Australia, I yeah. think. Yeah. Uh, it's a, it's an, I, I don't want to say invasive. I don't like the word, but it grows wild, this stuff here. It just, mm. if you have one tree, it just, there is no, the seeds are very tiny and they scatter everywhere. But this, this tree grows very fast. And this is like the main species that we have in mind right now for just chop and drop biomass, mm. just getting mm. carbon onto the soil and into the soil. And also as, as a firewood species, right? Mm. It's, it grows, it grows really, really well, this tree. And uh, apart from that, one thing that I, I forgot to say about like the inputs that we put in, like what, what we use for our land to increase the fertility, we have a tiny little pond uh, in the valley right uh, right besides our land. And so it's, it's not a natural pond. Like some people dug it with an excavator some years ago or probably like 20, 30 years ago. But the thing is that during like a heavy rain shower, all of the like the topsoil and the leaves and twigs and stuff that is laying around and on the ground in the jungle just gets washed down in this in this in this valley and it ends up in our pond. So what we do in dry season is Bill Mollison, he he called it the Chinese peasant approach to permaculture. That we just get into the pond and we just get buckets full of this mud out and we just dump it around the base of our fruit trees on the downhill slope to create the, like this kind of terrace over mm -hmm. time that you mm -hmm. have like now it slows down the rainwater and so this stuff i think it it for us it works wonders now mm -hmm. we we have a lot of the the trees where the last owner was like they were they never fruited before we we put a bunch of those we put a few buckets like 10 20 buckets of mud and the next year they start fruiting mm -hmm. so it does work and so we have we have this as kind of the joker uh, mm -hmm. in terms of soil fertility that it's just the only limitation is our our physical endurance, right? Because it's exhausting. You gotta you have two heavy buckets and you have to climb up the the side of the like it, no, it's it's quite steep the land. I, I was about uh, to say that carrying silt back uphill by hand is the best mm -hmm. exercise to motivate people to stop erosion. <laughs> yes. Yes, that is true. And that's what we're doing, right? We are reversing the natural process of topsoil erosion by mm. just carrying the stuff back up. Ne? And mm. it's the, the pond, I got to say that right quick, because uh, talking about the land, water is always a big issue. We do have a pronounced dry season from mm -hmm. pr maybe November, December until maybe 
April, May. It really depends when the rain starts. Like the really heavy rain starts in June and July usually. Um, and so during the dry season, we do water our vegetable beds manually with watering cans on both sides. And the, the problem is because the land is so steep, there is a limit to how high we can carry those watering cans, right? Mm -hmm. So about half, of, less than half of the land, the bottom half, we, we cultivate vegetables and everything above a certain line just doesn't get any water. And it's a nah, fight for yourself. If you make mm -hmm. it good, if not, we'll try. We we'll try planting something else, mm -hmm. because the first, the first, the first year that we moved here, we had we did this water pump. The, the the tanks are about fifteen meters higher than the water level, and we just bought one of those old piston pumps and we connected it just to a wooden handle and we were like turning the wheel with our with our arms and trying to get enough water, which was really exhausting, but it worked because we just don't water that much. Now our vegetables, we water them every second day, every third day, depending. So the second year and the third year, we used a bicycle. We just couldn't connect the bicycle to the water pump because the pond is the pond was never completely dry. It's not that deep, but we are very, very lucky that there is a spring right uh, at yes. that spot where they were digging the pond. So the, there is water bubbling up from, from below, from underground. Even until like February, March, there is still, you see the water coming to the surface at this mm. one spot in the pond. Have you ever considered creating two vegetable gardens, one high for the wet season and one low for the dry season? We actually do that. We we because in the in the in the upper part of our land the soil is better because it was planted in giant bamboo. There was just a lot less disturbance from you know usually people they cut grass all the time. Now they mm. they trim the grass like golf lawn kind of thing and so that is really really bad of course for the soil and so people didn't do that in the upper half of the land so the the soil is better up there and you see like if you dig down maybe 20 centimeters you find charcoal from this original clearing of the forest probably mm -hmm. some kind of remnants and so we did we we do plan or we in the first year we already started like digging terracing just a little bit and planting vetiver on the, on the on the edge so that the soil doesn't get carried away and because we have so much bamboo we just put like bamboo trunks on the ground yeah. so to create like this little terrace and we do plant stuff occasionally. It's a little bit limited because now it, it does get dry and the soil is not not that good yet. So we plant stuff like we plant the, the root, the root stuff. We plant ginger, we plant finger root, we plant turmeric. We have achira, the one that you're planting as well, kana, kana indica, is it, I think? Edulous is any form that has big roots, but indica is one of the common weedy species. Okay. Mm. Yeah, we, we, we grow a lot of that stuff because it survives without the need for watering so we we do that now we have stuff growing there that only produces in raining season and in dry season is kind of like fallow mm. there is still stuff growing right we, we still have the sawtooth coriander and just a few kitchen herbs and stuff that we use because that stuff it makes a taproot and it just stays there we have cardamom plenty of cardamom in between which we plant more and more of because it's a nice understory plant right so we we, we do that a little bit but we we focus mostly because it's also we are only two people and it is a lot of work, especially the first few years we work very hard. And so we focus first on the area around the house where we have water available at all times. Mm -hmm. And then we like we move every year. We make like we, we, we say this area this year, we're going to work on it when we're going to eh, make mm -hmm. the soil better. But it, it takes it takes a while. Yeah. Yeah. So might be good to shift gears and talk about mm -hmm. what your priorities and your philosophy in managing your land uh yeah wow that is a big topic for us because we think about that a lot i i mentioned that we live on the land of the chong and we in thailand we have we have at least two hunter like re actual hunter gatherer cultures the malabri and the mani in the south and then we have like a bunch of like hill tribes people call them hill tribes whether they're tribe or not is a different discussion but we have the curry and we have the mong nah? we have the aka the lisu the lahu and a few others a few other smaller groups and so they do swiddening they do this kind of of it, I, I'm, I'm not sure if i would call it agriculture it's more of a horticultural thing because or it used to be in the past right this these days it changes a lot. These days they clear massive areas and they plant only GMO corn to sell it as a cash crop. So it, it changed already, but we have this traditional way of 
producing food, of, of growing crops that works quite well, surprisingly well. Like a lot of people, especially in the West, they have this idea of slash and burn. It's like this horrible thing where you just cut down the forest and burn it and it's very wasteful. Mm. If you look at how it actually works, like traditionally and how the how, how fertile the land is and how, how diverse the jungle, the, the levels of biodiversity, it, kind of, it cannot be that bad. Mm. Eh? They, they get around the acidic soil problem by, by doing burning because you have the ashes and the ashes mm. like balance the pH in the first few years. Yeah. I, I get the impression that slash and burn agriculture, the negative impacts come when the scale of it is too large and the yes, timing, exactly. it comes back too yes. quickly. But when it's yeah. done properly, it actually increases the health and the diversity of the exactly. rainforest. Yeah. It works very well if you have a low population density and a lot of forest, right? Mm -hmm. James C. Scott, who wrote this amazing book on hill cultures in Southeast Asia, The Art of Not Being Governed, he said that it's about 20 to 30 people per square kilometer. It's like a, a good number to do shifting cultivation without destroying the environment, without actively degrading it. And so they work with ecological ecological succession. And we try to do the same thing. We look at species in terms of what is their ecological niche? What do they like? Are they an early successional species? And then we, we cannot just clear large areas because we don't have that much land. So we do it like in patches. We say, all right, this tree here is a wild jungle tree. We just chop it down for biomass. And so we create this hole in the canopy and we mulch with the branches. And so we, we work with ecological succession just not as extreme but the the those cultures the swidness they are a major inspiration for us because also the first year that they clear the land and they they plant their rice it's all like it looks like grasslands right the earliest successional species is rice and then the second year the composition already changes and they grow a bunch of other vegetables and roots and tubers and things like that and there's shrubs growing and after a few years, you have all kinds of fruit trees suddenly emerging. Now, first of all, there's the fruit trees that they left standing when they cleared the land initially, so to, to be kind of the canopy of the future. And then they also just eat fruit and throw away stuff. And then they transfer seeds and cuttings from their old swiddens. And so the diversity that they are working with, now, I, we were heavily influenced by this, by, by just two chapters of the book, Managing the Wild by Charles Peters. He's a, a professor of tropical ecology at Yale, and he wrote this book about his experiences. And so he said he was among the Kenya people in Malaysia, and they have in their forest gardens a, speci a species density of 125 tree species per hectare. Mm. And he said he visited this place, and he, he called them the most gifted foresters that he's ever seen in his life, because he visited this old man, and they were walking through the forest, and the old man wanted to show his garden. So he asked the old man, like, when, when, when do we arrive at the garden? And the old man says, well, we've been walking through it for the past hour. And the guy was like, wow. Now, because it was the, the, the forest was quite open, but multi-story forest, right? It really looks like a rainforest. You have a lot of diptocarps, you have palms in between, you have the vines that climb and hold the canopy together. You have just such a diversity of different species. Now he talked like seven different varieties of breadfruit and 11 kinds of rattan and just everything together. And this idea of having like your needs, your basic bio biological needs met on a single piece of land because you just grow everything together and you use the forest as an inspiration. Like you look at how does the rainforest does this? How, 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 how does it need to look like so that it becomes a self-perpetuating system? And we just try to imitate that basically. Né? So you, you mentioned in the introduction that what we, 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 we call it primitive permaculture, which is a little wink, wink, primitive permaculture. So it's not like we are already like primitive people, like primitive indigenous people, but it's the direction, it's the goal. Né? So we, we do everything that we do with using the least technology possible, I'd say, like advanced technology. We don't own a chainsaw. I hate chainsaws. We don't even use like power tools. We have a solar panel now. First two years, we live completely without electricity, but we, we use like a hand drill, for example, which I really love because even if the, the electricity goes out, I can still drill holes. We have a two-man saw for saw mm -hmm. for like really working with lumber, <laughs> which is a lot of fun and it's it gives you strong arms. So we, we, we try to do it as primitive as possible right and we have we try to implement basically the same 
ideology is that the right word the same like indigenous land management strategies right they they just have a certain set of i don't want to call it rules but like suggestions on how how you you got to do it like working together with nature the typical permaculture thing you don't try to force your will upon nature but you say what does nature want to do and we just help along with the process you try to create habitat at the same time it's not like I want this crop, so I'm going to plant it. But it's like, all right, so what is the other, what, what about the other animals? What are the squirrels like? I want to eat squirrels because I'm, I'm, animal husbandry is a little bit limited if you live on a small land on a mountainside, but we want to eat meat. So what do we plant so that the squirrels like it here? What kind of trees do they build their, their nests in, for example? Né? Then we have, we are, we are, of course, we are trying to decenter humans, né? as I've said before like the anthropocentrism is the one of the the worst things that ever happened to us humans this idea that we are just like the the rulers and the masters and we can do whatever we want and also which is i guess permaculture and also indigenous horticulture that you just you design for perpetuity you 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 put you 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 think seven generations down the road right and so at least so you you think about so how is this going to affect the future how, how is it going to look like in the future what are the effects going to be? And so, yeah, that is basically, to be very brief, what, <laughs> what we're doing, like the basics of, of, of what we call primitive permaculture. It's just, we, we just do indigenous horticulture, but for, for people who are not actually indigenous. Do you have much opportunity to interact with the hill tribes in your area? Sadly not, because we are in the southeast and all of the hill tribes are up north mm-hmm. and the indigenous people here the chong they've been forcibly assimilated they don't live in the forest anymore they are they do a lot of wage labor they spray the pesticides in the gardens of other people it's a very sad story they've underwent cultural collapse like many of the native american societies did and there is there is very very few people that even speak the language anymore it's heartbreaking we mm. try to like we were we drove around and like asked people and try to figure out and and get as much information as possible. But most of the information that we have on their original way of life comes from the, I don't know, the 17th century, like some bishop from France came here and he wrote down some stuff and you can believe half of it in the other half just sounds a little weird. But so for us in our situation, it's a little more difficult because we don't have the people right here who live. They are still around and they, they lived here for, I don't know how many thousands or tens of thousands of years but sadly all of this knowledge for this location here is gone so Mm -hmm. we have to try to figure out how to adapt the stuff from the north they have a very different climate right they can easily grow garlic and stuff like that that really needs cold weather and we we try to like do our we try to redevelop to to redevelop this kind of technique for our piece of land here in, in some ways, with the the chaos emerging in the climate, even if you do have a really ancient traditional system in your area, it needs to be flexible enough to adapt to how things yes. are changing in the future. So Definitely. I think the, 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 the principles of land-raised gardening are useful in, in every circumstance with, with what's yeah. unfolding around us. Exactly. And so the, the most the most resilient ecosystem, we had this really strong El Nino in 2016 when we were still living in the south. And it was like the river dried up and our pond was completely dry. We had to get out all of the fish and fruit trees in the village just died in droves. And when we walked through the forest, we didn't see a single dead tree. So we were like, wow, mm. there's got to be something here, right? Nobody waters, nobody sprays chemicals or fertilizers, but it's like the system is still there. It's probably not very productive in this year, but yeah. it still survives. And so we are like, all right, so we got to do the same thing, right? We got to mm-hmm. put not only one single level of trees, but we got to put three, four different levels. We got to use even the, like under the trees where there's no sunlight, we got to put the, the ginger family stuff that doesn't really, or the salak palms that doesn't really like uh, sunlight, direct sunlight, uh, and we got to put some vines in between. And uh, so we wanna, we wanna do, we wanna create something that some of the visitors somewhere in the future walks through, and he's like, "So where's your garden, by the way?" And we're <laughs> like, "Yeah, we've been walking through it." <laughs> so we had before this uh, this interview, we've been bouncing back and forth ideas about potential yeah. crops because at the moment you're not doing any selective breeding. You're you're mostly in the early trialing stages. Yes. But yes, we, yes. we talked about a few different potential crops that have potential for improvement. 
And one of yes. those is the Artocarpus genus. So yes. do you want to tell us a bit more? Because it's a it's a really large and diverse genus with lots of useful species. Yes. So Artocarpus is one of the ama most amazing genus, genera, what is the right word? Genera, yes. Genera, <laughs> yes. It's it's so it's so versatile. It's there's so many different species. We have all in all, we have eight different artocarpus growing on our land, right? It's the the very famous ones are the breadfruit, right? Mm -hmm. We have that one. We have the bread nut, which is like the wild ancestor of the breadfruit, which mm -hmm. still has larger seeds. We have the jackfruit, another biggest, I think it's the biggest fruit in the world, right? It, it is, can get really heavy, like 30, 40 kilos or something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have the slightly smaller cousin from Malaysia, the artocarpus integra is the jambada which looks like a jackfruit, but it's the, the, the flesh is really, really soft and really juicy. So we have, the, the thing why it's interesting is because we already have one hybrid growing here, which is, in Thai they call it kanun biak, which means the wet jackfruit. And it looks mm. like a jackfruit, but the flesh is more like jambada. The flesh is really, really juicy and really soft. And the taste is just incredible, like lemonade, really absolutely <laughs> incre incredible. And apart from that, we, we also have marang. If, if, if that's, if some of the listeners probably, probably nobody really knows this stuff. It's a jungle fruit from Malaysia, Indonesia. It looks like a tiny little jackfruit. The seeds, the, the flesh is much, much smaller. It's white and it's very, very sweet. And the thing is those artocarpus, you have male and female flowers on the same tree. I don't know how to pronounce this word, monoecious or something like that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm really bad with pronouncing stuff. I read words and I have no idea how to pronounce them. <laughs> no, you got um, that, right? It's a very, very diverse genus artocarpus mm. you have i think over the tropics you have over 100 species yes right yeah, yeah and so the pollination works mainly as far as we can concern is i pro it's probably wind pollinated as so many of those plants but there is mm -hmm. also always stingless bees on the flowers so yeah. i i guess that the stingless bees they play a big role other bees don't touch the flowers so much i see some ants on there sometimes but i think it's mostly wind and those stingless bees and the pollination process is fairly straightforward right yeah. you take yeah. a male flower they're very easy to pick out like the male flowers come first they're a little bit smaller and you just take them and you hit the you hit the female flowers with the male flower yeah, a little it bit. couldn't be easier it could be easier <laughs> exactly and so there is a lot of a lot of opportunity i think because it's a fruit like jackfruit and and jambada and, and marang and all those they they people just eat them as a fruit but you also have the seeds some people call the seeds of the jackfruit they call them jackfruit nuts because yes. if you boil them they are full of carbohydrates. They taste really, really delicious, like a potato in the direction of potato. Mm. But the seeds of jambada, of this Malaysian kind of artocarpus, they are even more delicious. They taste uh -huh. like chestnut. And oh. they are part, this is part of one of our, one of our mixed, like we, we cannot grow rice as a staple, right? So we have to rely on tubers, yams, and all that stuff. And so, of course, also on tree crops. And mm. so artocarpus, especially jambada, and especially the breadfruit in the future, and the bread nut, and the now the we wanna we wanna eat the, we wanna eat that stuff in uh, replace rice with it basically. Mm. Now, so yes. it would be interesting to figure out like some of the jackfruit trees because we plant a lot of jackfruit just from seed, which everybody advises us against. And no, you if you want a good tree, you gotta get the grafted varieties. But we're like, yeah, but maybe we're lucky or maybe we are unlucky, right? And if we if we are unlucky and the fruit is like really disgusting, which happens sometimes, mm. then we, we can still use the the young, the immature fuel, fruit, and we peel mm. it and we boil it and we make food with it, so it's still edible. Right. Yes, and yep. the, the because the seeds can really they really make you full. It it can be a future staple food for us and it will be even now. Like this year was a little weird. The weather is crazy right now. So but last year from our jambada tree right behind the house, we harvested like 50 fruit and we ate. We we didn't eat rice for a few months. We just boiled the seeds and you can mm -hmm. do all kinds of stuff. You can make like mashed potatoes or something. Everything that you can do with potatoes, you can do it with those seeds, basically. Right. So we, this is the really interesting, interesting to. Yeah, this yeah? is the really interesting thing. You've got a relatively small block of land, but you've already got mm -hmm. a, a suite of species together. And you could probably add a couple more if, if you like yes. got enthusiastic about this and then yes. learn that learn the basics of how to do the, the controlled hybridization to get more reliably hybrid seed and then just do exactly. mass, just do mass direct planting and plant exactly. them densely enough that they can just start to produce. Yeah. And then thin out the the poor 
performing yes. or low quality plants to let the other ones to, to have a go. Yes. And just doing that, you will become a world expert in Articarpus breeding and potentially yes. produce a whole new type of crop. Yeah, it 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 might it might be possible, right? Because I think there's even natural hybrids of Jambada and jackfruit of mm. Artocarpus heterophyllus and Artocarpus integer are the Latin names for anybody mm. who's interested in that. Mm. And so the I'm I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this, but I think no Thai official is going to listen to it. But we live right next to this forest, that's nature reserve, and it's really degraded in the area right around our land because there was a forest fire 20 years ago. So it's mostly like running bamboo, mm. but Every now and then when we have a lot of seeds, we go on a little walk and we just put a little seed somewhere on the ground and we're like, oh, how did it get here? Now <laughs> the monkeys must have taken the seeds yeah. because the elephants also, they love eating jackfruit, right? Yes. And it's much better yeah. if they have food in the forest and because otherwise they just go, they venture into the orchards of the people here and mm. it's terrible. Mm. Big conflict. Yeah, exactly. These kind of hybrid crops also have potential for what we would call guerrilla gardening or horticulture, like yes. the, the less hands-on form of agriculture. I think yeah. they couple really nicely with crop breeding for that purpose. Yes. Mm. And I, I think that one of the things to focus on might also just be seeds, right? so that you that you get a fruit in the end that has larger seeds or mm. more seeds, because yeah. it's not, a, you can eat, like, like jackfruit is a, it's a massive fruit. And if you eat like half the, of the fruit with two people, you already, it's like, you're all right, I have enough for today. But mm. the seeds, you can boil them, you can store them, you can make food with it that actually gets you full, that gives mm. you some energy, right, apart from a few sugars. And so that would be an interesting turn to take, I guess, for Artocarpus to have something like the bread nut, like the yeah. like the ancestor of the breadfruit, where you have only like you really focus on the carbohydrates. I, yeah. I'm, I would be really curious to see if you can improve how easy it is to store the seeds for future consumption, because I think yeah. at the moment they need to be processed before they'll store. Am, am I right in? Yeah. So one way to to store them would just be to to boil the seeds, to mash them into a, a paste, and then dry the paste in the sun, mm -hmm. so that you get basically flour. Mm -hmm. But the problem with our place is, as I said, we are it, we are in the clouds for many many months. So mm -hmm. whenever we try to preserve anything, bottle anything, we have the problem that some kind of fungus spores get inside and we get a lot of mold. So what yeah. we, our, the, the weather here, the climate here really limits the material culture that we can, that we can exercise. And so when it, especially when it comes to food, we store very, very, very little. And because if you have a lot of jackfruit trees spread over the land in different places with different sun and different soil and different water availability, you will have jackfruit most of the year. Mm -hmm. it, it can be that it's a bad year. This year was really bad. I said, now we got 50 jambada from the tree behind the house last year. This year we got 10. Right. So this year was really, really strange. Started off with a big storm that defoliated the trees, but environmental conditions permitted. If you have a lot of those jackfruit trees, for example, a lot of those jambada trees, jambada is a little bit more precise with the season, but jackfruit can produce throughout the year, especially the older trees. So there, it's not even for us, it's not even an, like we don't even need to think so much about food storage because in the few months when there's no jackfruit around, we just have the yams that we can dig up, the achira and all that yeah, good stuff. Yeah, yeah de definitely designing agroecological system where all of the different species fit together to cover the whole year is, yes. is, is really part of it. I think that way too. I, I always look at different seasons yes. and when things are, are available to minimize the amount of storage you have to do. Yes. Um, now there was a there was another really interesting species. This one will be a little bit more familiar to people around yeah. most of our listeners. But you mentioned yeah. an aquatic tomato. <laughs> yes, that's it's it's we call it the aquatic tomato because usually, you know, as far as I'm concerned, in Germany, if you cultivate tomatoes, you got to be really careful with the rain because once it rains. Nah, they sometimes they just die they just mm. get a little bit of rain on their leaves they just die mm. and so we are very lucky that there is this one is probably some kind of heirloom variety the people here they don't know anything about breeding so you ask them and they say yeah it's just they call it prunban which means like the rural kind the, you know, the stuff that we grow here in this area mm. and it's a tiny little cherry tomato it doesn't really like like growing high but it just it's scrambling over the ground in all directions and making new roots wherever the trunk touches the ground right 
And so this is the only tornado that I've ever seen in my life that gets like heavy monsoon rain and still produces a few tomatoes here and there. Mm. Like mm. even though we don't have a greenhouse and we don't want one because nah, it's a big investment <laughs> and all that. And we are primitive permaculture people. We, we do have this one, this one variety of tomato that, that handles the, the rain really exceptionally good. And I think that this is, this is a very, very interesting thing for people who live in the tropics, because if you don't have a greenhouse, you can grow tomatoes only in dry season. Mm-hmm. Because as, as soon as the rain starts, most of the plants just shrivel up and die right away, right? And so this, this is the only kind that still produces. And it's also, it is the only kind that we grow this year. We, we tried with the bigger ones and this, our soil is not that good yet and all that stuff that I talked about before. But this one is really, it's like a, like a wild plant. It, yeah. we, it, it comes together with our compost, with our human newer compost. So we do the compost toilet thing and those seeds, they just don't die. So wherever, the, wherever we spread the finished compost, there is tomato plants growing everywhere. So it's basically self-seeding with a little yeah. bit of help from us. Né? And they pick the places themselves. They say yeah. when they really grow here, we let them grow. And in other places, we don't. But we, yeah, they, they produce. They, they don't produce a lot in rainy season, but they survive. And that's already amazing. And it, it sounds like it's probably a Solanum pimpinella folium, which is the ancestor of more selected tomatoes. That's really interesting. Mm. I, um, I, I, I had no idea about the scientific name. Nobody here knows scientific names of plants. Yeah, well, t- the the selected tomatoes are one of the most inbred crops in the world because they've yeah. gone through multiple yeah, genetic yeah. bottlenecks and they've lost yeah. so much along the way. But if you go back to this ancestral form, you get an idea about yeah. how vigorous they're supposed to be. We, we yeah. have a form of that tomato that grows wild here as well. You find it growing out in the paddocks. It, it, wow. anywhere it gets a little opportunity it, it takes off it does a lot better in the vegetable gardens though yes yeah yeah and, and that, i mean tomato yeah. what well, that is a crop that you can do breeding with the pollination is a little bit tricky because it's like a, yeah. a, a buzz pollination but yeah, there are there are it's ways like you've around you've got to that. take out the male part of the flower you need Bef- a little before bit the like pollen shed yeah yeah yeah, yeah but, but um, we we gotta we, we gotta start doing things like that anyway i need to buy the tools or to get the tools anyway because you can use the same tools for pollinating vanilla flowers or not it's kind of like the same yeah. set for, for plant breeders you get like a few tweezers and stuff like that and yeah it, do- so... it doesn't take a lot of technology to to get a handle yeah. on it and yeah, definitely taking that locally vigorous tomato that's adapted to your tropical conditions and then mixing yeah. in some some other pimpinella yeah. folium or selected gilentum genetics, yeah. you could develop a much better robust tomato for your local conditions. That yes. could be a good project. Yes. And one of the downsides of this, this tomato is that it just, it doesn't produce that much, mm. right? So even in dry season, we have tomatoes every day. But like those really, really long clusters that you have with the cultivated, with some of the cultivated tomatoes, we have like four tomatoes in one cluster maximum mm. with this. With, and it doesn't seem to produce more, no matter how much, or no matter how good the soil is, right? Yeah. So that would be to make them just a tiny bit more productive and see if we can get like this sweet spot in the middle of yeah, having exactly. a really resilient plant that also produces a little more tomatoes. And if they would be a little bit bigger, that would be all right as well. The yeah. taste is incredible, by the way. Mm. Taste is mm. amazing. <laughs> and you mentioned there was one final niche in your system that you, you yeah. missed. Maybe this is the German in you missing cabbage. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is tomatoes as well, by the way. There is just... I. I, I don't miss any European food because I have good food in front of my doorstep every day. So if, if nobody talks about it and if I don't see pictures online, I don't miss the food because mm-hmm. I have amazing food here. But so one thing that I would like to have is just some some species of, of brassica. And I, I would even be I would even be fine with like a, a mustard greens or things like that. But so far, the problem has been, as with tomatoes, as with all the other like regular vegetables that we try to grow here, is that the conditions are just not right. If we would live in the north where we have a long cold season and the soils are very fertile, it would work. But here it doesn't. And usually we just accept that. Usually we're like, all right, so the land doesn't want us to eat this thing right now. So mm-hmm. we don't, we just don't eat it. We just look for something else, right? But it would be nice to like experiment a little bit because yeah, tomatoes... 
uh, something that I really miss if I don't if I don't have tomatoes is I would I would always love to eat tomatoes and it's the same with with brassica now with mm. with all kinds of different species in Germany we have kohlrabi I'm oh, not yes, sure if, yeah. if other people know that and it's yep. oh it's incredible but that stuff you cannot grow it here so I would even be fine with like mustard greens something like we had seeds of this kind of they call it the hill tribe mustard mm. which comes from the people who cultivated on the mountains in the north and we tried it last year but last year was La Nina, right? Mm. Really, really strong. So we had just tons of rain. We did not have a dry season last year. Mm. And the cold season was also not that long. It's usually like one or two months here, but it was shorter than that because we had the cloud cover all the time, right? So it wasn't that cold. And so we failed. We wasted all of our seeds. We got to ask. There is this one place in the north. They, they give away free seeds. You just send them an envelope with a stamp on it and they send you whatever seeds you like and... Mm. A great project, Pan Pan Organic Farm. John Jandai, yeah. he does amazing work, this guy. Uh, and so he he was the person from his project. We got those seeds, and we gotta we gotta we gotta get those seeds again for next year because next year is probably gonna be a bit more dry. So we'll try again. So sometimes it takes a couple of years trying a species as you go through extremes yeah. before you get lucky, and just getting that first generation where you can yeah. even just multiplying the amount of seeds you have to play with. Yeah, yeah. often. Failing on the first attempt doesn't necessarily mean that it's worth giving up. I, I usually have yes. to kill something yeah. like three times before I'm like, okay, take, <laughs> take, take, take the hint. I, I I would strongly recommend trying Ethiopian kale as well because it comes from the high altitude oh, tropics in Africa. Yes. And yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can get some seeds of that to you from my varieties. I would it... be so happy to get some seeds. I'll give it a try. One other thing you could potentially think about there. So in the lowland parts of Africa. So Brassicaceae has a sister family, the Cleomacy, mm -hmm. the spider flowers. And there's one okay. of those that's grown as a leaf vegetable in like East Africa. It's Cleomy, oh, wow. Cleomy gynandra is the species okay. that they grow in Africa, but it's actually a fairly right. large genus. There's like 20, 30 species, and I'm pretty sure wow. they're mostly interfertile. So this is a crop that I'm, it's on my maybe list of getting around to, of taking uh -huh. that vegetable form of Cleome, the spider flower, yeah. and crossing it with some of the other species to see if I can create something new. And yes. that might be something that would be a fun project to try under your conditions. Yes, too. yes, definitely. Because it must be possible, right? There must mm. be some way. So I've I've never heard of this before. You gotta you gotta send me the legend name one more time after we finish this conversation Absolutely, because I yeah. have my memory. But I'm I'm gonna check it out. We what we do right now just as a little like detour. But we have we have this plant. I I forgot to look up the Latin name beforehand. It's called we 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 call it fireweed. It's called Pagadentai, and it's it grows in disturbed soil, and it is. It kind of like goes in that direction. It's the, the stems are crunchy. You can eat the leaves. You can eat the stems. You can eat the young flower pots. The flowers are, it's a little bit like dandelion. Like the flower opens up and then the seed flies away. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Red, reddish flowers. And this is one of the vegetables that we eat very often because we just mix the soil in a vegetable bed and this stuff starts popping up first thing. And we, you can make kimchi with it. It's mm -hmm. a it's it's a vegetable that where people don't think of it as a vegetable. Most people in the village they don't know that you can eat this plant, and we're like, what? We eat it every day, man. Mm -hmm. So now sometimes there are species that can be used as a vegetable that are very very good, not very mm -hmm. nutritious, very hardy, but people just don't know that you can eat it. So there's probably potential for all kinds of leafy greens not to have like wild ancestors or wild species. Well, a, a lot of crops started out as weeds in amongst other crops exactly yes brassica was also the original wild mustard it's just it just grows everywhere mm. right it's just mm. a wild plant yeah. a, a really interesting anecdote anecdote i learned recently is so yeah. when wheat and barley were domesticated in the middle east oats yeah. was a was a weedy crop that like lived yeah. in that disturbed ecosystem but it was like get rid of it it's horrible we don't like it as agriculture uh -huh. spread into Europe and it eventually got up against cold and wet climates where wheat is marginal, barley hates it. Like you can't grow barley in yes. like Scotland. That's yeah. when oat, which was this weed that had hitchhiked along with the crops. Wow. Suddenly it became the only thing that people had to grow and it became a major crop in climates where <laughs> other things just couldn't keep up. That is so cool. I did not even know that. 
really really cool yes so yeah al- always be on the lookout for species that enjoy your company and maybe exactly. look look for opportunities to to become to become friends rather than enemies yes 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 mm. whatever is edible we try eating it and if it doesn't taste good we try again but in a different we prepare <laughs> it in a different way right mm. a lot mm. of the stuff that we eat the people in the village they are horrified by like you you can eat that stuff <laughs> Their, their ancestors ate it, but people these days, nah, it's a different standard of living. So a mm. lot of the knowledge about a lot of the bush foods, a lot of the wild stuff, people people don't eat it so much anymore. And now they have a, uh, people these days have a very low tolerance for the bitter taste, mm. which is kind of cool about Thailand because there is still like people here, they still eat plenty of bitter food. There is still a lot of vegetables, a lot of like the bitter gourd, for example, yes. which is yeah. really bitter. Yeah. But people don't have this. Like, like in Europe, people would say, don't eat it. It's poisonous. Nah? Mm. But it doesn't have to be poisonous. It's not always poisonous. Sometimes it's just really healthy, the bitter mm. stuff. Right. And so working, I, like, if you have a, a tolerance for bitter stuff, then it, it already, it, there's a lot more possibilities now that open up. So bonus round questions, we can round things off. If you yes. could wave a magic wand and transform any species of plant, like space and time are no limits, what, what would you want wow. to create? No limits at all. That's a very good question. I love that one because my wife and I, we play this game all the time where we're like, if we could combine two plant species, what would we do? And my absolute favorite, like if we're talking about God mode, everything is possible. Mm. I would create a pineapple plant that produces durian fruit because durian is my absolute favorite fruit and pineapples now they they just give a new fruit each year and if you don't water them it's all right as well but this is just now i'm i'm being nonsensical <laughs> if if we're talking a little bit more realistic then i would love to have the possibility to do banana breeding because we have like 20 something almost 30 different cultivars of bananas and some of those have a few seeds every now and then so we have a bunch of bananas that have like really ancient genetics from the original Musa Kuminata. And so I would like if I could work wonders, I would lo- I would love to create a new banana variety because we love bananas. It's one of the other staple foods that we eat all the time, whether it's ripe or unripe. Mm-hmm. So that would be nice to have to experiment, to have the ability to experiment with that a little bit. I, I'm surprised nobody's thought to breed bananas as a stem crop because I know the heart of banana is edible, and yeah. I, I think in th- in Thai culture it's it's often added as a a, a minor oh, vegetable. Yes. We we eat it all the time. There is there is you know usually the bananas here from Southeast Asia is all Musa, right? If it's not Akuminata, then it's by Bicini. And in Africa, they have a, they call it a false banana, which is such a bad word. Like who says what is the right banana was the <laughs> wrong banana. Ne? It's sente and sente glaucum. Mm-hmm. And those bananas don't produce suckers, but you got to replant the seeds. And the seeds are like really big, like the, I don't know what to compare it to, like longan seeds. I'm not sure if people mm-hmm. know the longan fruit, but really, <laughs> really large seeds. And so this banana, you can... They, the, the, the trunk is massive and people use it a lot for like pig fodder like mm. to, to feed it to the pigs. But also you can just eat the trunk as with other banana species. And so you already, ha- they are massive. So mm. we, we never tried it because we grow it as an ornamental. The flower is really pretty. Mm. But there is, the, like from the Ancente, there's also many different, spe- many different species of, of Ancente. Mm. There might be some species that are already like in that direction, like produce a massive trunk that mm. tastes good because sometimes it's a little bitter or astringent, right? Yeah. It, again, there's so many of these projects just laying around waiting for the right person to, to yes. dedicate, you know, five to 10 years of their life and create something new. Yes. Um, exactly. So next question, what is your vision for the future of food in your community? That's another thing. I could go on for hours and hours, right? We we live in this area where it's it is industrial monocultures. Yes, there is trees, but it's just one single kind, and they have such massive prog- problems with fungal infections. Phytophthora is killing a lot of durian trees, and it's resistant to fungicides. And people don't know that, so they just spray more fungicides, mm-hmm. and. So it's it's really in, in this area here or in tropical areas in general where people grow fruit, the amount of chemicals that people spray it is so horrible. It is so heartbreaking to see like 
to feel the ecological imbalances that are being caused by just this massive application of just carpet bombing the entire area with pesticides. So what I would love to see in this community is sooner or later, there's got to be some kind of economic disruption that just causes fertilizer prices to spike and pesticides become unavailable and things like that. So people are forced to do agroecology to say, all right, we did this thing where we do everything like the Western engineers wanted, wanted to do. Now they do this thing, they terrace the mountains with excavators and bury all the topsoil. And then they only, they, they keep the trees alive because of those inputs, right? Mm. And so to reverse this process, to say, all right, but the people in the past, they were able to harvest fruit without all that. So how can we do that? How can, how can we go back to that? Like in, in Europe, they do this renaturalization of the landscape. I would like to see the renaturalization of the foodscape here because mm. it would not be difficult. We have the rain. Now, even mm. in dry years, we still get the rain. So we we have pretty good conditions. We can grow all that stuff. We are like the little seed bank here. Like we already give away stuff to people from the village because we, 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 we give them fruit and they're like, oh, that tastes really good. I never tried that before. Can I plant it? We're like, yeah, here's some seeds or yeah, here's a little plant. And because people have a lot of land, the conditions would be perfect to create one massive giant food jungle. Now it's just the, the profit incentive has to disappear. And that is, it, it doesn't happen by convincing people. We cannot just go there and preach now because it's, it's not our thing to do and it wouldn't, it won't work. So my, hope my vision for the future is that some disturbance in the system creates this 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 opportunity that people say all right so let's try without yeah. chemicals and, and and all that stuff and and they need living examples and sources of appropriate yes. genetics and, and species for that to be possible exactly yeah yes yeah we're, we're definitely on the same page with that approach to things yeah and it it's also that the people here in this area, it's 30 years ago that the, the entire valley was covered in lychee plantations. And lychee needs quite cold weather to start flowering. They need a, a really pronounced cold season. And so about the turn of the millennium, that just stopped happening. Like the short season just got shorter and less cold. And so lychee, no matter how much they spray, they spray hormones as well. And they, they have like all their fertilizers, but no matter what they tried, they didn't fruit reliably. So they cut them all down the entire valley and they started planting durian. So people in this area, they have been experiencing climate change for a lot longer than most other people that I know. And definitely most people in the West, they've been feeling it for decades already. Right. And so I guess that there must be a way to like, all right, so to take past experience and to just project it in the future and be like, look, what if in 20 years we cannot just plant Mon durian montong monocultures anymore? So what do we do instead, right? Yeah. How do we adapt? Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the idea the of awareness having, is there. Having a yeah. hundred species of trees per acre, per hectare, yes. means yes. that if the climate changes year to year or if it changes decade to decade, you have that resilience. There's always something that's yes. going to be producing. By, by the way, I, I, I want to show off one time right quick. We, <laughs> we have 500 species on our land, at least, that we know the name of in at least one language. Wow. And not species. I don't want to say species. It's different. If you, call, if, you, if you count all the different cultivars of plants as mm. individuals, then we will, we will have, let's say, over 500 different kinds of plants that we know that we utilize in some kind of way or that we at least tolerate because of the ecological benefits. Mm, no? wow. We just have three different species of two, two different species of tree and one difference uh, and one species of vine. We use it as toilet paper. So even <laughs> like for things like that, we just now the diversity that you can have in the tropics is incredible. Really, there is so many different species. And as you said before, we still have international trade. We can exchange seeds. We have stuff from South America, from Middle America, from Africa. We have the safu, the butter fruit and things like that. Mm. And that can be a staple crop in the future, right? It, it's just, it's all up to the other people. Like once they're ready, we're like, yo, we, we were, we were, now we are here. We give you the seeds. We give you the small trees. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it takes 
fringe weirdos doing the experiments on the margins <laughs> who, who are willing to put in the time and, and take the yes, chance. That's what we are. That's yeah, what and, we are. Fringe and, weirdos. Yes. And <laughs> once we come up with the things that are the winners in the local environment, that's when you can start sharing them with the community and, and having a positive yes. impact. Yeah, that's true. So final opportunity to, to to plug your writing and what you do. So how can people get in touch with you and learn more about your your work that you do? We have a website. The website is fernfu.org. Fernfu is written F-E-U. Wait, no, I got to think. I, I'll put the links in the show notes so that yes, people can find F-E-U-N-F-O-O them easily. And we, we have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram page with the same name. We're not that active on social media. If, if there is something, we have the email address on our website if anybody is interested in getting in touch. But apart from that, I do write like essays and stuff occasionally on Substack. My Substack is animusramblings.substack.com. That's, that's about it. Excellent. I'll put all of those links in the show notes so people can track you down if they want to follow up and, and find out more about what you do. Nice. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. I, I found this thank really, you. really inspirational. Thank <laughs> you for the opportunity. It's a lot of fun to just talk about gardening, right? Whoever, when you meet gardeners, there's always stuff to talk about. Absolutely. Yes, it was a pleasure. <laughs> I had so much fun. Thanks a lot, man. Okay. All right. Well, maybe we'll check in again in a, in a year or two's time and see how you're going. That will be interesting. <laughs> okay. All right. Bye. All right. See you.